Hello and welcome to Raw Stories, the fortnightly podcast where I share new writing, whether it's ready or not. My name is Caroline Hardman and this week's story is Selkie. She smells the sea before she can see it. Or perhaps she only imagines the smell because she knows what's there over the dunes, waiting for her to arrive. She parks the car and walks down onto the sand. Mark is there already, staring out at the water. When she was pregnant with Leo, she had walked along this beach every morning, sometimes in the evening as well. It became a ritual of sorts. Their ritual. If she would park in town, walk past the docks and then along the sand, hands resting on her belly. She'd point out the kestrels and curlews soaring overhead and the lights of Kirkudbright blinking across the water. That's Scotland, she'd whisper to him, where your granny comes from. They had celebrated Leo's seventh birthday in Maryport, a party at the indoor climbing centre for all of his friends. She remembered it like it was yesterday. The cake, the music, the candles, and presents. So many presents. She had begun buying them weeks earlier. Mark had raised an eyebrow when he saw the growing pile in the spare room, but said nothing. Perhaps they'd both known somehow, even then, that this birthday needed to be special. One Leo would remember. Among the presents, all wrapped in gaudy colours and glitter foil, had been a small, plain package, with no label, no card. Perhaps the card had fallen off, she remembered thinking, and had searched the floor, under the table, the boot of the car. She'd never found it. Leo, concerned only about what was in the presents, not who had provided them, pounced on the package and tore open the paper to reveal the contents. A small bundle of waterproof material. Is that a wetsuit? someone asked, but she couldn't answer, not at first. It's a coat, she finally replied, in a voice which didn't feel like hers. The tiny coat was jet black and silky smooth to touch. She shuddered as she stroked it. He'd demanded to try it on, of course, right then and there in the middle of the restaurant. Reluctantly she let him, telling herself it would be fine, that it was just a coat. It fit him perfectly, as if it had been made for him, said someone, and there were nods of agreement from the other mums. She gripped the table more tightly. Just a coincidence, she told herself. Nothing to do with her mother's stories. Let's drive home along the coast, said Mark, after the party was over. She glanced at Leo, half asleep on the back seat already, curled up in the coat. The back roads are quicker, she said. It couldn't hurt to be careful. As they drove through silent streets with the windows down, she breathed in salty air and thought about Leo's father. Her mother had warned her about men like him, but she hadn't listened. How she used to laugh at her mother's stories, her silly beliefs. How she wished her mother was still here now. She would know what to do about the coat. They never spoke about Leo's father, and even if Mark had asked, there wasn't much to tell. Even less that she wanted to tell. He was already there when she arrived at the pub for her shift that night, 
sitting alone at a table in the corner. She noticed him immediately, his hair black and thick, and those big, dark eyes which stared straight through her. The same eyes she'd seen in the hospital when Leo was first handed to her, wet and wriggling. If there had been any doubt in her mind about whose son he was, it vanished in that instant. The pub had been busy and she didn't notice him leave, but saw afterwards that when he had done, he'd left his coat draped over the back of the chair he'd been sitting in. It was only hours later, after she'd finally chased the last of the locals out of the main bar and was wiping down the tables, getting ready to lock up for the night, that she saw he'd returned. She fetched the coat from where she'd hung it behind the bar and handed it to him, but he refused to take it. You wear it, he said. I'd like to walk you home, and it's cold out. When they got to her cottage, they both went inside and she lit the fire, still wearing his coat. It was only after they both sat down that he gently peeled it from her. Before long, he'd peeled off the rest of her clothes, and then his own, and that was that. He left early the next morning. She watched him pick the black coat up from the floor, where it had fallen the night before, and slip out silently back to wherever he had come from. Perhaps she should have said something, but she didn't. A few months later she met Mark, and six months after that, when Leo was born, and they'd both fallen in love with him instantly, there seemed no more reason to think about that night, or about Leo's father. Until now. Until the coat. When they got home from Maryport, she put the coat in the back of a drawer they never used, and hoped Leo might forget about it. She thought about getting rid of it somehow. She could bury it in the garden, perhaps, even burn it the next time they had a bonfire, just to be safe. But it was Leo's coat, not hers. And what could she tell Mark? In the end, she closed the drawer and tried to forget about the coat herself. The news was in all of the papers when it did happen. For days, reporters had swarmed all along the coast, poking about, asking questions, looking for stories to link to this one. And then there had been the police investigation, with more questions. How did Mark and Leo get on? Why were they at the beach that day? How long had Mark turned his back for? How strong a swimmer was Leo? What had he been wearing? So many questions. And then there were the questions no one thought to ask. Questions she knows that she and Mark will never ask each other. One day, she thinks, she'll find a way to tell him the truth about Leo. But she's not sure it will help. She's not even sure what truth she will tell. So that was Selkie. Oh my goodness, this story has taken me so long to get right. I mentioned a few weeks ago a fantastic workshop on folklore and fairy tales that I went to earlier in the year uh, run by the London Lit Lab and this was another story which came from that workshop. One of the sessions we had was all about transformation stories and sulky folklore in particular. We looked at a couple of examples of 
stories from different authors who had taken mythology around Selkies as a starting point. And then we had a go at doing the same thing and coming up with our own story ideas. If you don't know very much about Selkies, I certainly didn't before this workshop. They come from Scottish and Irish and Celtic folklore. These are seals who come to land, shed their coats and become humans. And the way if you meet a human form Selkie to keep them as a human is to keep their coat from them. There are lots of other elements common to those stories as well. The Selkies are often involved in some act of seduction. With a human, uh, the number seven is often relevant and important. And often stories do involve people hiding or destroying coats in attempts to keep the Selkie there. So some of those elements I wove in to this story. I sat in the workshop and we had about 20 minutes to work on work on our stories. So I sat and jotted down an outline, which I then shared with the rest of the group. And the premise was very simple. It was the idea of a, of a woman having a one night stand with a selkie, becoming pregnant, and then seven years later, her son receiving his coat and this woman being faced with a dilemma of what to do with it. And when I shared that with the group, when I got to the point where I talked about this coat suddenly arriving, there was a ripple of interest around the room, a bit of a, an intake of breath. And I knew at that point that I had a story that might be worth exploring and telling. So the process of writing this was a very different process for me than I usually go through. What normally happens is I have a very slight glimmer of an idea and then I write about that and I write around and around and around and around and around in circles about it until I finally discover what the story is that I'm actually trying to tell. In this case I had a story, I had a basic plot and the challenge for me then became trying to figure out the best way to tell that story. So it was a very different process. It also really helped me work out in my head, I think, the difference between plot and story. Woman has an affair with a selkie. She becomes pregnant. She has a son. He receives a coat she chooses not to get rid of it and although it's not said explicitly it's heavily implied that he eventually returns to his seal form and she loses him and that's the bones of it that's a very simple not particularly exciting plot but then the story starts to become how you tell that how you communicate that so how you how you get a reader interested, how you make an emotional connection, what the emotions of that are, and how, how those get drawn out. I don't think I'm explaining this very well. Um, anyway, my challenge after this workshop was then to work out how best to tell this story. Um, I did a bit of work on it, and then I put it away for a long time. I got distracted by other stories that came out of that workshop and by life in general. And then I saw a call for submissions to an anthology of stories 
set on the northwest coast of England. And at this point, this story had no geography. It was set by the seaside because it had to be, but it didn't have any, um, it wasn't a particular place. And it suddenly dawned on me that the northwest coast, an area I don't know at all, could provide that setting. So I got Google Maps out and did some research and then placed this story in a very specific location. And that helped flesh it out a little bit. The irony is that most of those location details, which I researched really carefully and really thoroughly and made sure all of the the driving routes and landmarks and those sorts of things were accurate. Most of those details I have since taken out again in the edit, Um, but there are some place names in there still. And although it's not in the story, I know in my head uh, where these characters, exactly where these characters live, and there is a coast road or a back road route they could go to get there from Maryport, where the birthday party is. So all those details sit under the surface of what's actually on the page but certainly helped to inform the story. What I submitted to the anthology was a very early draft, a very different version than the one you've just heard. Uh, It wasn't accepted which doesn't entirely surprise me if I'm honest. I think looking back I sent it in knowing it probably wasn't quite polished enough Um, but I have since done some more polishing and polishing and polishing and polishing. It's been a really long, slow process, Um, but it's nice to have it at a stage where I feel like I can share it on the podcast at least. So as I say, it was a very different process. I, for me, the challenge wasn't in trying to discover the story. The challenge was in trying to find the best way to tell it. And I literally tried pretty much everything so I have versions and drafts of this story which are written in the first person rather than the third person. Uh, I have played around with tenses quite a lot. I've chopped and changed the order of events quite a lot so there's a few flashbacks in there. The timeline was a lot more complicated in some earlier drafts. We kind of flashed back and forth a lot more originally. And I just kept writing and rewriting and experimenting until I finally worked out what I wanted. I think third person probably was the right choice. I wanted a bit of distance. This is a very sad story, but I like to leave gaps for readers, or in this case listeners, to fill those emotions in themselves. So we sit at a bit of a distance from that unnamed narrator and she doesn't have a name. She she deliberately doesn't have a name. I did give her one in some drafts and then I got rid of it again because, again, I I like us to have that sense of distance from her, which is much harder to achieve in the first person. Handling of time and positioning the various flashbacks to earlier events and also thinking about tents was also something I experimented with a lot. 
uh, and I've completely chopped and changed the order of things around several times. Um, I wrote the whole thing in the past tense. I quite like the immediacy, I think, of the very opening and the ending being set now and in the present. Shift in tense acts as quite a useful framing tool, I think. The ending of the story is the other thing I had to work really, really hard at. It's something I have to always work really, really hard at. I find, I may have said this before on the podcast, I find endings so hard to write. It was really hard to find a line or a sentence or a phrase which felt like a completion of sorts. I'm still not quite sure I've got there, but what I've got at the moment certainly feels more complete than anything else I've managed to come up with so far. I decided in the end what I needed to do was just go and look at lots of endings of stories and try and work out how people do it. So I dug out a couple of short story collections, but you really need to know the whole story to understand how an ending is working. And even short stories take a bit of time to read, so that was going to become a slow process. And then I picked up a collection of flash fiction, which was perfect. It was The White Road by Tanya Hirschman. And over the course of a day, I dipped into that and read lots of short pieces of her writing. She is really good at bringing even a very short piece to a satisfying end. So I looked really carefully at all of her last lines and tried to work out how she does that. And it definitely helped. I don't quite know what it is I spotted. I think I did notice a couple of patterns. She often ends either inside a character's head, so with them looking at something or thinking something or seeing something, or almost doing the opposite and making a very broad, almost philosophical sort of statement about the wider world. I found it a really interesting um, and useful thing to do. And flash, flash fiction is the perfect form because they are nice and short. As always, if you would like to get in touch, I would really love to hear from you. You can do that on Twitter. I'm at Raw Stories Pod or on email. So you can send an email to rawstoriespodcast at gmail.com. That is it for this week. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Have a good couple of weeks and I will see you in a fortnight for another Raw Story.